the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is going to be celebrated. And I tell you that because we've been going through the life of Elisha. We have two more. Sorry. We have two more. we know it's working. We have two more sermons in the life of Elisha. And then after that, I realized that we have ten weeks up to the end of, of October. So, I thought, well, the five solos of the Reformation and then the five points of Calvinism. So, that will be after the next couple of weeks, uh, ten weeks, on Reformed Theology. So, wanted to let you know because I'm kind of excited about it. So, with that, let's pray. Father, we ask that You would be here with us as we open Your Word. We thank You for the life of Elisha, that we see Your mercy and Your justice. And as we see both sides of that coin, we are reminded that Your mercy and Your justice kiss in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ there on the cross. And so I pray that as we see the life of Elisha, help us to see our Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask in His name. Amen. Alright, last week we saw a very big shift in the ministry direction of the prophet Elisha. Whereas he had been a prophet of hope and salvation at the beginning of 2 Kings, last week there was a whole change in his focus. And his focus and tone had been changed into judgment. Why this sudden and abrupt change in tone and direction? Last Sunday I pointed out that future judgment would be coming upon Israel and that that was the reason for Elisha's change in tone. But there was a more specific mention, uh, a reason that I did not mention. The specific reason to understand that, we'd have to go all the way back into 1 Kings. Back before Elisha even was anointed for ministry. We have to go back to Elijah's ministry. God gave Elijah several instructions, but because of some su surprising circumstances that are too complicated to go into detail in this sermon, Elijah was unable to fulfill all those things that God had tasked Elijah to do. So Elisha, then as his successor, was to fulfill, the, fulfill these things at the appointed time. One of those untasked or undone tasks that Elisha was to do was to anoint Haziel king uh, I'm sorry Elijah one of the undone tasks that Elijah was to do was to anoint Haziel king over Syria another uh, undone task was to uh, anoint Jehu as king over Israel and so, listen to First uh, Kings 19 as God gave to Elijah these instructions. 
And the Lord said to Elijah, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall anoint, or shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Now I was aware of these instructions to Elijah uh, last week, but I uh, had too much to say on uh, the subject of hell that I did not bring it up. But I knew it would come up again this Sunday. So, God had given these instructions to Elijah, and then several decades had passed. Elijah had been swept up uh, in the whirlwind up into heaven, and Elisha continued the ministry of Elijah, his mentor. Uh, So, Elisha now is going to fulfill these instructions that God had given. You know, it's even likely that Haziel and Jehu had not even been born when God gave these instructions to Elijah to anoint them to be king. But God had promised that they would be king. And once God has promised to do something, He never forgets to do it. God has a long memory you know, I have found that this is one of those things that Christians struggle with almost more than anything else. Because we're finite and we have limited memories, we project onto God our human weaknesses. Because we have short memories, we project onto God our forgetfulness. Or because we are unfaithful to our promises, We project unto God our misrepresentations. Theologically, we believe that God is omniscient. That He has unlimited knowledge. And that He never forgets anything. But when we're going through a difficult time, when we're going through a period of hardship, we are tempted to think that God has forgotten us. We might not verbally say so, but we often act as if we believe like one of Job's counselors who said, What does God know? Can He judge through the deep darkness? Thick clouds veil Him, so can He even see us? He's way up there walking on the vault of heaven. And so, uh, one of Job's counselors was doubting whether God really did see us all the time, whether He really did remember us, whether He uh, really was faithful to His promises. And as I say, this is one of those struggles that uh, we tend to have when we're going through hardships. It's been a common struggle for Christians throughout the ages. In fact, the writer of the book of Hebrews had to remind his readers of God's faithfulness when he said, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. 
Peter had to remind his readers of God's faithfulness. He said, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. I have noticed that we are better able to remember the faithfulness of God so long as God's dealings with us remain within a range in which we are willing to live. We sing of God's faithfulness as long as we feel that we can still manage our own circumstances. Once our circumstances move beyond what we feel is our ability to control or our ability to cope, then it is very tempting for us to take our eyes off of God. And we take our eyes off of God and place them on our circumstances. We place them on ourselves. If this is a common occurrence for you, I would suggest that you probably need to take some time and study uh, God's uh, uh, God's attributes. Um, because it appears you have fashioned God to be someone that you want to control. There are two books that I particularly recommend on the attributes of God. Uh, the first one, The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. The second one is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. The book, uh, no, uh, Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, you can actually find it for free on the Internet. Um, and it's less than 100 pages long. So, I uh, would recommend either of those books. If you do find yourself to have too small a view of God, you will, by definition, grow discouraged when suffering and hardship comes into your life. A biblical view of God understands that He is fully and sovereignly in control of your life and in control of everything that comes to pass in your life. Ephesians 1.11 says that He works everything according to uh, His... He works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Everything in your life, He's working out in conformity. Perfect and uh, good plan for you. Unfortunately... We like our lives to work according to the purpose of our own will, and then we expect God to bend His will conform to our will. We can be so stubborn even that for God to show us that He's in control, what He will do is put us in situations that we cannot control. You trust God when everything's going our own way. In a way that we can accept to control. But real faith trusts God even when everything is going contrary to our desires and plans. So I've got to trust God even though this headset, every time I touch my, my side, is going to make some kind of weird noise. I'm going to trust God that you hear every word I say and that it seeps deeply into your soul 
and that your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ grows in spite of any of the static. <laughs> Let me give you an illustration of uh, what I mean in terms of trusting God when life goes completely out of our control. I want to give you an illustration from the prophet Jeremiah. God gave to Jeremiah the assignment of prophesying the imminent destruction of Jerusalem. And the political leaders did not like his message at all, especially because he was saying to the political leaders, you are the leading edge of God's um, displeasure. It is He's saying to the political leaders, it is your, uh, your leadership, your unfaithfulness, your ungodliness that is leading the whole country to think that it is okay to be unfaithful to God. So, naturally, the political leaders are not going to be very happy with Jeremiah. In fact, Jeremiah told it of at least three different occasions in Jeremiah chapter 11, Jeremiah chapter 18, also Jeremiah chapter 26, where the political leaders had cooked up a scheme to put Jeremiah to death. You know, being God's mouthpiece meant that Jeremiah was under constant threat of death from God's own people. Being under a continual threat of death can begin to wear on you. Jeremiah also wrote the book of Lamentations. In Lamentations 3, it's clear that the stress of being under threat of death had begun to wear on Jeremiah. Listen to him describe the stress in, in Lamentations th- uh, chapter 3. And by the way, you'll notice that he knows that God is fully and sovereignly in control of his life and his suffering. Jeremiah cries out in Lamentations chapter 3, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me He turns His hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy though I call and cry for help. He shouts. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me to abound with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. You can think about it. He's probably so uh, stressed that at night he's just grinding his teeth all through the night. And then he says, 
Uh, he has made my teeth to grind on gravel, made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that is suffering. Frankly, I am a stranger to that love of emotional anguish and distress. And I would imagine a very small percentage of of us this morning have ever tasted that kind of suffering. Reading this passage, we'd be tempted to think that Jeremiah has reached the end of his rope and that he is ready to repudiate his faith. But then suddenly, in the next verse, Jeremiah stopped recounting uh, all the bad things that God had laid upon him. And he started praying. And so in the next verse, he says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. And so he's confessing, I'm just dwelling on on the, the, the bad things that you have sent my way. And what's happening is the, the prophets would embody God and the prophets would also embody the people. They would stand in the gap, so to speak. And so as Jeremiah is being persecuted by the people, he's embodying the people's hatred towards God. But also, in his life, God is laying on him all this distress because God is teaching the people the distress that's going to come upon them through the life of Elisha. I'm sorry, through the life of Jeremiah. But then he says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. And what does he call to mind? He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then he says, the Lord is my portion says my soul, therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Please ask God to help you remember that God never forgets you. No matter what's happening in your life, no matter how pleasant your circumstances are to you, no matter how long your trial may last, God is not forgetful of you. God is not forgetful of your circumstances. You may be hemmed in behind and before, to the right and to the left, where you feel like you have no decisions to make. Your circumstances are terrible and they seem unending. Don't forget that God never forgets you. He is working. He is working for your good and He is working for His glory. We must ever be careful to remember that in our waiting for God's deliverance, God is always working. While we're waiting, He's not sitting on the sidelines. He's working 
Maybe in ways we can't see, but He's always working. You'll never be able to understand the faithfulness of God by taking the short view. Take the long view with God. He's got a long memory, and His faithfulness is just as long. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. God is faithful to you in life. He's also going to be faithful to you in death. For many of us, I think death is where the the rubber meets the road. You know, we'll deal with what comes to us in life. We don't have any choice but to deal with what comes to us in life. But we live in, in anxiety of death. Either death for us or death for our loved ones. God's faithfulness means nothing if it does not also apply to the subject of death. You know, I'm about to turn the big five zero this year. Our culture teaches us that uh, when you turn 50, you're supposed to take stock of your life since it is thought that uh, 50 is the halfway point for a really good long life. Well, all I have to say about that is I hope that my halfway point, my midway point of life has passed many years ago. Uh, I have no plans to live near 100 years old. Um, I'd rather enjoy Rose's banana pudding. (laughs) You know, I'm looking forward to dying well before I get to be 100. Now, I know I said that, and I know I've just gotten myself in trouble. Mandy doesn't like me talking like this. She's offended, I'm sure, that I would not want to live on earth here with her. Well, I do want to live on earth here with my wife. My marriage to Mandy is sweet and has been getting getting sweeter and sweeter. She's sweetness in my life. And I would not want to leave her behind by dying before her. So, what I'm saying then... <laughs> is that I hope her life is also well past the halfway point. Now, in case any of you are offended that I'm taking a lighthearted view of death, I'm only following the Apostle Paul's lead in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he mocked death. For he said, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? No, death is an enemy because it's here in the world, because sin is here in the world. But because of the faithfulness of God to us in death, God has turned death into a friend. Death transfers us into the direct presence of God. For the Christian, death is simply a transition. Nothing more. Death is a transition. You close your eyes in death and you open them immediately in the presence of God. If you are in Jesus Christ, you do not need to fear death. In our passage, as I conclude, Elisha 
had a young prophet go down and anoint Jehu to be the king of Israel. We read it earlier. Ben did a fine job of reading it. I'm not going to read it again. I'm not even going to go into detail about the passage. But I want you to be aware of the aftermath. Last week, we saw Elisha anoint Haziel king of Syria. And Elisha cried because he knew what Haziel was going to do to the people of Israel. That he was going to go in and indiscriminately kill not only the soldiers, but also the young men and the young women and the mothers and even the pregnant mothers and rip the pregnant mothers open and also kill the children. And so as he's anointing Haziel, king of Syria, Elisha was weeping. And Elisha knew that God was going to bring judgment upon Israel because of their continued faithlessness towards God. And now here in chapter 9, Elisha is sending this young prophet to go anoint Jehu, uh, king of Israel. And Jehu is going to go and kill all of Ahab's descendants. Ahab, Jezebel, if you know about them, they were Baal worshippers. And so God said, I'm going to wipe out your descendants. I'm going to wipe out every descendant. And so that's what Jehu's job was going to be. And so Jehu, being anointed king, he did that faithfully. And he started the longest and most prosperous and powerful dynasty in the northern kingdom. In fact, Jehu's great-grandson would be Jeroboam II, who was the greatest king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Jehu's line of descendants, therefore, also ends up being the political leaders whom the minor prophets prophesy about. And in anointing Jehu, Elisha knew that what God was doing was allowing Israel to store up wrath against themselves because of their refusal to repent, their refusal to turn to the Lord, their refusal to be faithful to the Word of God. And it eventually ended up in the northern kingdom being um, given over to exile. And so what Elisha's doing has ramifications for centuries in the, in the future. In other words, God plays the long view. God is faithful to His promises. The promise He gave in Genesis 3.15 to have a descendant of the woman destroy the serpent. That's playing the long view. Why did God allow this judgment to come upon Israel? Why did God uh, anoint Haziel and Jehu who would bring so much misery upon God's people? Well, the long view is, according to the Apostle Paul, is so that we would see their, their example of unfaithfulness and realize that we are no better. And that just as they were sinners, that we need to go to a Savior who is able to forgive us 
of our sins. And God, in the fullness of time, in faithfulness to all His promises, sent the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a Savior who came to seek and to save the lost. He came in accordance with God's promises. He went to the cross in accordance with God's promises. He rose from the dead in accordance with God's promises. And He is seated at the right hand of God making intercession for you. And He says, as He, as he said in Matthew 11, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, who are looking for rest for your souls. He says, Come to Me, wear My yoke, and you will find that rest. You know, I've been talking about the long memory of God and about His faithfulness. Did you realize that there is something that God actually can't remember? There's one thing that He can't remember. And normally I don't ask for a response, but if anybody can think of the one thing that God forgets, the one thing that He just can't remember, our sins, that's right. He casts our sins into the depths of the sea. He says, He remembers them no more. That just seems too good to be true. And all knowing, all remembering God says He forgets our sins and remembers them no more. That just points to the thoroughness, the completeness of the atonement that our Lord Jesus Christ made for us on the on the cross. Oh, if you haven't come to Him, if you haven't trusted in Him, if you are weighed down by the guilt of your sins, come to Him now. He remembers your sins no more through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come to You this morning thanking You that You are a God who forgets our sins, because Jesus Christ paid for them completely. He paid for them all together. He paid for them thoroughly so that not one of them remains, even in Your memory. God, we have a hard time believing that just like we have a hard time believing that You are faithful to Your promises when things aren't going our way. Help us to refocus and recast our gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, in whose name we pray. Amen.